His name shall be Emmanuel. You can see that behind me. God with us. God is not distant. He is not uh, some God who has set everything in motion and he's out in the distant, unconcerned with you. He is with us and so much so that he proved it by coming in the form of human flesh and living a life just like us, emptied of his divine power, suffering and feeling everything that we feel and then dying a death on our behalf and interceding for us constantly, daily, while we're asleep, he's awake, keeping us, not slumbering, not sleeping, but watching over every single person that calls him by name. So we're gonna bow our knee and go to Emmanuel right now and ask him to be with us here in these few moments. Heavenly Father, God, thank you that we can call you Father, Abba Father, come to you boldly without fear of dying in your presence because we have sin, but with confidence and boldness knowing that our sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west, that your mercy is on us every single day, that your grace is greater than our sin, and that you have gone out of your way to give us promises hundreds of promises in your word of your love and care for us. So I'll pray for each person, each one of us, maybe someone who's been littered by the words of the enemy, who speaks a gospel that's not good at all and has somehow maybe convinced them that they have fallen away from your love and your compassion and your care, that they've fallen away from your mercy and your grace, that it cannot reach them. Father, would you in this moment comfort their hearts and remind them once again, and maybe for the first time ever, that you love them, you're here for them, and you gave up your only son for them. So Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would fill our hearts with shouts of deliverance and joy, that we would see just how victorious your son is and being on the winning side of this, even though their suffering is worth it and should should cause us to continue to sing as we have already this morning. So, Father, we give you the honor and glory for everything through the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Take your Bible. And I, I would, I would every, every Sunday, I would like for you to be in your Bibles, but especially this. I want you to see the words we're looking at. I want you to, I want you to get what we're going to be talking about because this section of 1 Peter uh, has sent many people for a, a tailspin into a confusion, wondering what in the world is Peter talking about here? So let me, let me bring us into uh, the mindset of our study, as we always do. Identity matters is this series. First Peter, and we're saying that identity does matter, but we're also gonna be talking about the matters of identity. Our theme verse tells us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possessions, who are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We we are someone here on planet earth. If you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, you believe in your heart these things, that he's your savior, and you've called out to him and he's forgiven you of your sins, then you are one of his children. And God is wanting to use you for your time on earth, however long it may be, to make a similar impact that he did. And one of the ways he is going to use you 
is through how you go through the hard times and the suffering in your life. And specifically, Peter is trying to say that if we're going to suffer on earth, let it be for the right thing and not for evil. Gone are the days where we suffer because of our own evil choices. Now the new days for the rest of our life, we are trying to live the good life as we learned last week and be at peace with everyone. But even if we should suffer, we can trust our Savior that he's going to use our suffering for our family, for our friends, to help them see something different in us, first to the glory of God and secondly to the salvation of those who need to see truth and need hope. So today, we're going to talk about our triumphant Savior, our triumphant holy example. I am very excited to preach this sermon. Um, and I hope you'll see why. So, so let's first talk about this. Let's, let's give us a reminder of what we've been talking about. Holy suffering. All of these identities of people on planet Earth. He spent a chapter and a half talking about something that's hard to talk about, and that's suffering. Holy suffering, we learned last week, is verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I would say that's pretty easy to understand. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But this is holy suffering, and we talked about it last week. But Peter has been working through talking about very hard things. These Christians are suffering for being Christians. And he's trying to invigorate them with who they are, the truth of who God is, how much he loves them, and how he wants to use them. But he's been talking about this theme of suffering. And, and let's read these, this, today's passage and, and then talk about it. Because he's going to shift. There's a reason he goes into the passage today. We need to get this. Verses 18 through 22, let me just read it. Let, it. let it have the effect of what? That it has with everyone who reads it. And then let's talk about it and see how awesome it is. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And all of God's people said, amen. <laughs> Every, okay, Peter, we've been tracking with you this whole time, and it seems like we come to verse 18 of chapter 3. You go into a realm of thought that, that like, what are you doing, Peter? It's not random. It's flowing right out of what he just talked about. It's almost, here's what I want you to see. Imagine this. Imagine you've, you've we've, we're the uh, Christians in Peter's day and we've just read all of these identities we must be willing to suffer according to God's will in, uh, you know, citizens, um, slaves, uh, wives, husbands, Christians in general, not repaying evil for evil. Uh, striving to live the good life, not reviling, and then being willing to suffer if that be God's will and being prepared always to give uh, an answer or a defense for the reason of the hope that is in us, ready to suffer 
for God and for others. It's like Peter knows, like, man, in this moment, and it's not just Peter, it's the Holy Spirit, knows that God's people need uh, a shot of uh, encouragement, but awesome reminder of the victory that they have in Jesus Christ. And it's like to, in the right moment, taking their mind off the, the pain of life and putting it back into heaven and reminding them what in the world has happened and who they are and who they get to be a part of and the story they get to be a part of, which is this victory that Jesus has brought, eternal victory over all the powers of the cosmic, eternal, spiritual, physical realm. We get to be a part of it. So that's why I want you tracking along with me because we're not, I'm not trying to make anything up or make the passage say what it wants to say. I want you to be able to see the encouragement here. So here's the question that's going to guide us because what he does, notice in verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered. So he talked about their suffering. Now he's turning their minds to Jesus and he's gonna talk about Jesus and have them consider his example of suffering and what it accomplished. His example of suffering and the, the, the eternal purpose behind it in turns so that you would read this and you'd leave here today and the, Peter, the Christians in Peter's day would never doubt that their suffering for him is worth it and accomplishing something. So here's the question. What did Christ's holy suffering accomplish? And did it accomplish something? Oh, yes, it did. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What did Christ's holy suffering accomplish? First thing is this, it accomplished our salvation. It accomplished the salvation of every single person on the planet earth who calls upon the name of Jesus in faith alone, apart from works, to be able to be saved and specifically to be able to be brought to God, implying that we are distant from him. And the Bible teaches that everyone has been separated from God. And God is solving this problem of separation. Romans 5 tells us that we are enemies with God and God is reconciling us to himself. We're not doing it. It is while we are enemies with him, Romans 5 says, in the example of Christ's love, that Christ died for us. First thing that we see in Christ's suffering is that it is accomplishing the salvation of his people. For Christ also suffered. Brother, sister, suffering for doing the right thing, then you need to remember Christ also suffered and has suffered accomplished something. But notice this, his suffering, it says this, once for sins. Notice this, I have a little typo here. He made a way for sinners to come to God once. It should be say once for all. It's my typo problem. Once for all. If you go to the book of Hebrews, you read this wonderful truth that Jesus died once for all, not once and for all, but once he died once on the cross in the past 2000 years ago and his death was for who? Everyone, all that would, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is marvelous because that once reminds us that wait, Every single year, we don't need a new animal sacrifice. We don't need to have a priest on our behalf go into the Holy of Holies and hope that the sacrifice will be perfect, that they will be clean and they will be prepared to go before God and, and then anticipating with great fear that the, the sacrifice would be accepted and then God's anger that had built up the year before because of the sins of his people would be uh, sated and covered for, for just a while until the next year they had to do it again. You read the book of Hebrews, you find out the blood of bulls and goats is not good enough. 
but you find out that Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who only died once for all, for all time. And his sacrifice did not just quell God's wrath and anger against the sin. It has completely satisfied the wrath of God and, and made all who are in Jesus completely justified and right before him. That when he sees you, he does not see your sin at all. He sees the perfection of his son applied to your account, which is why he says this next thing. Once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. He became sin who knew no sin so that he might bring us to God. The unrighteous becoming righteous by the righteous taking the penalty of the unrighteous. Jesus did not become unrighteous, but he took the wages of death, the wages of sin, which is death upon himself on our behalf. Christ's suffering has accomplished our salvation. Look what he says next, comma, once for sin, the righteous, that being Jesus, for the unrighteous, all of us, comma, that goal, purpose, that he might bring us to God. Remember your suffering. What are you trying to accomplish through that? The glory of God and to bring others to God. In the same way, in the same way when you suffer, you, you get to partake in this mission of helping bring people who are lost in darkness, who need the light, who if they were to die instantly would stand before God in judgment and not pass through the judgment, but would be cast away from his presence into an eternity of hell, which is beyond any suffering we've ever experienced here on earth, which is why it's worth suffering here to have an eternity of joy, pleasure, and hope fulfilled than, than to spend our whole life trying to satisfy our flesh, getting, making this the good life now, only to spend eternity, eternity experiencing what we wanted here on earth, which was God to leave us alone and give me what I want. To not have God to the fullest and to be separated him to the fullest is the most greatest experience of suffering anyone could ever have. And God allows us to suffer to an extent here on earth so we'll say, I don't like this. Something's wrong. I need you. Take me away. I want to avoid this. I don't want to experience this forever. And so God makes a way to bring us to God through Jesus. But he had to suffer. He had to. You know, if you read the previous passage, thinking about yourself, if it be God's will that you suffer, like, man, if it be God's will, God would will for me to suffer. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, if it's possible, this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the father said, yes, my will for you. In a few moments is for Judas to come and kiss you on the cheeks to betray you and for you to be handed over after spending all night stressed, sweating drops like blood, no sleep, anticipating this day, then to be handed over and then to be betrayed by one of your own, then to be uh, wrongfully accused and to go through wrongful counsel, then to be sent to multiple different legal uh, uh, kings through Rome in the area who would pronounce you innocent, but somehow your own people would scream for you to be crucified. And then you'd spend the next six hours hanging from a cross by your wrists and your feet, gasping for breath, until 3 p.m. comes and he lifts up his voice and he says, it is finished, and he gives up the ghost. What is finished? His suffering is finished and the plan that had been set up from the beginning in Genesis chapter one of a seed that would come and crush the snake 
the, the enemy's head has come and it is finished. The atoning work of Jesus on the cross has been finished and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be freely, 100% forgiven of their sins. Stripping the devil of the only thing he had against us. Oh, it keeps getting better, church. Oh, you, let's keep going. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. How? Being put to death in the flesh. But this, but made alive in the spirit. Not completely dead, not the Holy Spirit, but Jesus' spirit, the part of him that's eternal. His flesh died and was dead for three days, but his spirit was alive the whole time. And on the third day, he rose from the dead with a glorified body, being the first fruit, signifying which type of resurrection you and I would have. Like there is coming a day where we have a glorified and actual physical body where the spiritual realm and the physical realm are completely joined together. And there's no more sin, no more crying, nothing. It's glorified body experiencing a new heaven and a new earth. That's, 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 this only has a fraction of a taste of how cool it could be and is going to be for God's people. That day's coming. We're living for that day. But now there's work to be done and it may involve suffering. When you suffer, if you suffer, according to God's will, you remember your holy, triumphant example whose suffering accomplished something for you. You better believe it's gonna accomplish something for those around you who are watching you as well. Died in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. We're tracking so far. Here's where the comma comes in, verse 19, and it gets really interesting. Okay, so, so, so where are we at here? Christ's suffering, example, he dies, he's made alive in the spirit. So now you're thinking about Jesus being dead for three days and his spirit being alive. And verse 19 says he went somewhere. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. <laughs> what, Peter? I was with you so far, but what in the world are you talking about? Christ's suffering not only accomplished our salvation, but it also accomplished his vindication, meaning that he is being proclaimed to be right that what he did is, is, is before the face of all the enemies in the spiritual realm, vindicating himself over all the principalities and the rulers and the authorities, and that he has been vindicated. He is the right one. He is the one who is justified. He is the one who is king. He is the one who is the victor, and he has the victory. So what did Jesus do for those three days? He went somewhere. He went to a prison. Now, verse 19, he is being vindicated and he proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison. Now let's dive into this passage and understand what he's talking about. He went and he proclaimed that word proclaim using his mouth. That word proclaim is not the same word that's used for when the gospel is being proclaimed. It's a word that's being used when someone is shouting victory. It's a proclamation of victory that would go out through the land after war. He went and proclaimed to who? The spirits. Now, okay, so you might, okay, who are these spirits? Where are these spirits? Well, he says that they are in prison. If you read multiple different places in scripture, you go to the book of Jude, go to other places, you'll hear about uh, uh, 
angels of darkness being in chains waiting the day of judgment. There is a prison that God has placed certain angels and demons that are awaiting a day for their final destruction. So, okay, he's going to a prison, a spiritual prison where there are spirits. More likely he's talking about the angels. And then he, he clarifies who they are from a certain time of history. And he takes us all the way back to the first few chapters of Genesis and he brings our thoughts to the days of Noah. So keep tracking with me here. Preach to these spirits in prison. And then he says, comma, because they're in prison. Why? Because they formally, in the past, did not obey. And what was their disobedience? It said they formally did not. When, when was this? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Anybody from, from, anybody can shout it out. Does anyone know how long God's patience was in the days of Noah? How many years? Anybody know off the top of their head? Uh, someone said it, 100 and, 120. So you got 120 years that God was patient. And what was happening during those 120 years? The message, flood, judgment is coming an ark is being prepared for you. Get aboard the ark and you will be saved. You will be spared from the wrath that is coming upon us. And if you go and read during the times of Noah's, that God says that man's thoughts were only evil continually. There was not an ounce of any hopeful good in them. They had been completely demonized and run over by these horrible evil spirits in the spiritual realm that we cannot see completely 100% taken over. And they had 120 years of God's patience and the message of salvation aboard an ark and judgment that was coming. And how many people were spared during that day? 120 years of patience. How many people were spared? It says here, a few, eight people were brought safely through the water. Christ's suffering has accomplished not only our salvation, but his vindication over the spiritual realm that has been eagerly at work trying to keep people from being saved. And he takes us back to a time when the evil spirits seemingly were so successful in controlling and ruining the world that no one would listen to the message of salvation. And the only people that were saved was Noah and his family. Eight people after 120 years of preaching. Now let me ask you this. I'm asking you now to, to think about a world that is different than the physical world. A real world where there are authorities, principalities, there are actual hierarchies and governments that God has angels all under him that, that, have, that have left their normal habitation, where, however this works, where God has left them to work and to do something and they've rebelled against God and now they're meddling with the image bearers of God. And in this day, the sons of God came down and started messing with God's people and totally overtook them. And God looks down and sees these people have, these people have been totally overthrown. In a sense, the demons were successful 
at turning the whole world against God and from ever being able to be redeemed. Their hearts completely, utterly turned. And at the end of that, one righteous man and his family were saved aboard the ark. Over the last 2,000 years, since the real true ark has come, Jesus Christ, how many people do you think have been saved? You think just eight? How many? I think millions upon millions, maybe even hundreds, maybe even billions, maybe even trillions, who knows? What do you think that is saying to the enemies who thought that they could overthrow God, who, who, who got a little taste of being able to take the image bearers of God and turn their hearts completely away from him. Jesus suffers, he dies on the cross, which by the way, he let the enemy have his son and kill him on a cross. And that was the plan the whole time that destroyed and struck a final blow to the head of the devil once and for all. And he, 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 he wonderfully turned around their own efforts against him. Every effort that they made to try to destroy Jesus and destroy the seed of God, to destroy Israel and God's people, God used it all. And he used their own efforts to bring about their own destruction. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he gave up the ghost. And for three days, he's going to this prison where he is shouting and he's proclaiming his victory over all these evil spirits that thought they could overthrow God and ruin the plans of salvation for people who deserve the same prison that they have that God is going to deliver them from even though they don't deserve it and pour out his mercy and grace on you. All the while they get to watch us be redeemed and not experience what we deserve and have the mercy and the grace and the inheritance of God that they will never get. And so Jesus proclaims his victory over all of these spirits. His vindication was pronounced and he accomplished that as a result of his suffering. Tracking with me? But your mind should also stay in the days of Noah as Peter's is because he's now going to talk about something we experience here that should make us think of the days of Noah. Baptism. Okay, how does this relate? Well, look what he says here next. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. He's wanting us to correlate these two things in which a, that is an eight persons were brought, get this, safely through the water. So they're here on earth the waters of judgment are killing everything and they're actually passing safely through the waters. It's not touching, it's not destroying them because they're aboard an ark able to pass through God's judgment. And then he says this, baptism, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, or maybe your version says is an anti-type of this, anti-type. Baptism, which corresponds to what? Verse 20 correspond is relating is symbolic of this and then he says this now saves you that's caused much debate over many years and has confused many people and that's why there are some churches who believe you actually have to get dunked in water to be saved that is not the gospel that's not what this is saying here and if you you know he's not because he puts a comma and he qualifies why it's not or verifies explains why it's not he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body. You don't get baptized to be cleaned and cleansed of your sins. First John 1, 9, you confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't get dunked in water to do that. But your baptism is doing something. And this is when he says this, not as removal of dirt from the body, but 
as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to actually see some people get baptized this morning. Christ's suffering not only accomplished our salvation, his vindication, but our vindication as well. And Jesus, God and his plan, has set up this mode in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I want this, these spirits in prison to see for the rest of time, for all of these years over all the world, that my gospel and message of judgment is coming. Repent will go out and it will not be like in the days of Noah where no one will listen. My people who are scattered throughout all of the world throughout the rest of time will hear, will believe, and will be saved and then they will be dunked in water symbolizing what you tried to do and what happened to you and this vindicative proclaiming message that I'm bringing to you to really spit in your face every time a sinner repents and is baptized. It is a visual show that this person believes in Jesus and is now passing safe through the judgment of God and making this proclamation, the same type of victory lap that Jesus did. And you better believe, we may not see it happening behind the scenes, you better believe it's happening behind the scenes. The demons and the imps that are destined for hell are being mocked and tortured by the reality that there's nothing they can do about it. Oh, 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 I think we've forgotten the, the actual implication of being dunked in water. We've made it too much about, it's just an obedient thing that I have to do. No, there is a spiritual effect that God himself is wanting to have towards these, these unseen spirits that are constantly at work trying to overthrow his plan and he wants to be vindicated over them and he wants to vindicate you over them as well. You do not belong to them. You have changed masters, you belong to God and he is gonna spare you from the wrath that it is to come in the same way that Noah and his family pass safely through the waters of judgment. You will pass safely through the judgment of God when you stand before him and give an account and the righteousness of Jesus is on your behalf. You will not experience the flood of judgment. This is good news. Our baptism proclaims this victory as well. So when we see people getting baptized, you better know, maybe we may not be able to hear it, but there is gnashing of teeth happening in the spiritual realm, and there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Baptism corresponds to this. It's symbolic of this. You know, sometimes you thought, you know, baptism means death, burial, and resurrection. It actually more specifically means more about this. It means more about passing through the judgments of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is all mixed up in it, but we need to understand that someone is lost. They believe in Jesus, and then they physically get baptized per the plan of God to be able to proclaim, keep this proclamation going. The spirits hate it. Actually, if you talk to many people, they get saved and it's like when they get baptized, they make a public proclamation. It's like persecution starts up in their life. Actually, there are some countries that the persecution doesn't even happen and start until they get baptized. And I think that's because the demons hate us. They wanna kill us. They can't stand it, but they've lost and they're losing. It keeps going. His suffering has accomplished two other things here in this final verse. First, it has accomplished his exaltation. Verse 22, 
who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. Jesus suffered and died and he has been exalted to the right hand of God and he rules over everything. Real quick, let's turn to some verses together. Psalm 110.1. You can turn with me. You don't have to. I'm going to read it regardless. Psalm 110.1. God says this, the Lord says to my Lord. So David's saying, God the Father is saying to my Lord, Jesus the Messiah, sit at my right hand until what? Until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus is currently watching his enemies being made his footstool. It is happening and will completely happen. Now turn back to the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm turning with you so I don't get to cheat. Colossians chapter 1, and then I want you to look at, drop down to verses 15 through 23. He is the image, talking about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. You see that? All things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent he is at the right hand of God and God has given him the name above every name and God is bringing everything under his preeminence he is first and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord one more verse Keep your finger in the Colossians. We're going to end there, actually. Revelation 1, 5 through 8. I want you to see this. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will well on the account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the all mighty. What did his suffering accomplish? His exaltation. He is at the right hand of God. He is king and his enemies are being put beneath him, which is what the final part of the verse says. It says, who's gone into the heaven, Peter says, at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. His suffering finally accomplished this, their subjugation their subjugation who's there all of the evil spirits that would want to ruin your life are being destroyed by your savior and king they are being subject no matter what they cannot do anything without his permission so even if they're messing with you it's God allowing them to do it and guess what he knows how to turn their messing with you around and destroy them with it with your life by his spirit God's spirit inside of you bringing you through the temptations and the trials and your faith may be waver, but it never goes away. And you hold on to your faith and you are saved to the uttermost and you will experience the inheritance and the salvation 
that First Peter chapter 1 talks about, and they get to watch it. You know, the book of Revelation uh, ends. Why, does God, why is God doing this the way he's doing it? Why don't he just wipe it out? No, he wants there to be this victory lap. He wants to make a mockery of evil. He wants it to be the greatest uh, championship of all time. Not just a, na- a national championship, world championship. No, this is a universal cosmic championship and we get to be on the winning side and see exactly what that uh, victory lap is going to be like. It's happening right now. It's about to happen in a few minutes as you see people get baptized. Reminding us of the victory that Jesus has brought, that people are being brought safely through the waters of judgment and their conscience is making appeal. They're saying, I'm good with God. I believe in Jesus and I have been saved and I'm going to pass through judgment. All who see and hear Would you repent as well and come to Jesus so you can pass through judgment? Their subjugation, they are being subjugated, all of them. And then we're going to end with this, and I'm going to pray. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the face, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who was the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Get this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You believe in Jesus, you are saved and you are triumphing over this enemy who only could stop your salvation through sin and sin has been dealt with. And guess what the final enemy is? Death. And death's going to be dealt with as well. And your Savior is coming, church. He is coming. You stay true to him regardless of what you go through. Don't let the enemy win. Keep this triumph and this victory lap alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you were so good. You were so marvelous and wonderful to make us part of this, not just a team, but family. A family that is victorious and will see the victory. I pray that you would work in every single one of us in a way where your voice and your purpose is louder than the voice and the purpose of the enemy that we've been a slave to for too long, that you would continue to crush his head, that even though he is breathing out threats against the church, he knows his time is short, he cannot take it, he hates us, he hates you, it still doesn't matter. Father, you are destroying him 
and will once and for all in the lake of fire, along with everyone who would reject your son. So Father, we pray if there's someone here right now who is on the losing side, who has, who has been rejecting Jesus their whole life, who, who knows in their heart, Jesus is who I need to be following and give my life to. Would you in the tenderness of your spirit that's able to break people's heart and make them contrite, would you, would you grant them tears to be able to call out to your son Jesus and say, please forgive me of my sins. I know that you're the savior. You died on the cross and rose from the dead. Father, would you grant that to someone here that may be here this morning, not saved, and would you bring them into this victorious family? Put this in your hands in Jesus' name.